So let me, let me get to our uh, passage for the day. We are in uh, Mark chapter one, which is what Christy just read through. And we are starting a new series this morning on our family values. Um, in the past, we've called these core values, and that's fine, but uh, this year we're, we're, we're branding them as family values because the picture that we have in our minds when we think about family is this table that we're all invited to, that we're all sitting at if this is your place. If this is your home, we're sitting at this table, and it's a mess. Like, this table isn't on Pinterest. Uh, this table is probably pieced together. Um, it's, it's messy. The, the meal has been eaten, so to speak. But what are the values that we're now talking about around that table? Um, because every family has values, right? You have values. You probably talk about them um, at your own table, when we talk about our values, we're not saying these are the only values that any church should ever have, but we are saying that this is the, these are the set of values that this church has, right? So this is what we center ourselves around with our church. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about all of our core values. We have five of them. And then that will all lead up to the week after Labor Day when we will start a new series called No Other Gospel, and we'll be going through the book of Galatians for many weeks to come. But before we get there, we're talking about our family values. What were the values that you had as a family growing up? You remember the values that, like, like Aaron talked about, scripture memory obviously being a value of theirs because they did scripture memory as a family. What are the values that you have as a family? I remember mine growing up. My dad was pretty consistent about telling me what our family values were. They were God, family, country. God, family, country. Um, and yes, he walks, watches Fox News a lot right now. So uh, God, family, and country were the three values that we were to center ourselves around, and that was fine. Like, that was all I knew growing up, and yet when I started to become of age and started to look around at our lives, I started to think to myself, I don't know if those words mean what he thinks they mean. I don't know if those are all right because God, family, and country weren't the things that we centered our lives around. I mean, God wasn't a real big piece of my growing up and family, well, that was broken when I was three. So those words started to ring a bit hollow for me. And I pray that our values don't ring hollow. Our prayer as the elders and leaders of our church is not that we would just state these values, but they would be a part of our DNA. They wouldn't just be stated, they would be lived out in real time. And we hear about this every week, like in our neighborhoods, in our networks, and for the nations. For Jesus and for good, these are the things that we center ourselves around. So what are these five values that we're going to be kicking off today and then speaking on the next five weeks? Well, today is gospel-centeredness or gospel centrality. If you were a part of our partnership class yesterday, you heard a lot about gospel centrality. We'll hear more, uh, more about it today. Uh, that we are a faithful family. Again, we have these family values. Uh, that we would value missional living. We're going to unpack that. Uh, heavily in a couple of weeks, that we value the priesthood of the believer. What the heck does that mean? That means you're a priest. doesn't mean you go around and you wear a collar and a robe. It means you, you share in the robes of Christ, right? There's something different about that. And then finally, our fifth one is tangible redemption, which no one understands, but we're going to unpack that one for you as well. That one's on Labor Day weekend. Come one, come all. It'll be a good one. So, what is this gospel-centeredness all about? I think there is some confusion about what the word gospel means. Many of us will simplify gospel as saying that's the truth, 
Like that's the gospel truth. Some of us will say uh, that it's the first four books of the New Testament, that it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of you assume or think that when we say we are gospel-centered as a church, that means we put the word of God at the center of everything we do. And the word of God is the center, but that's actually the gospel. The gospel also isn't the message of Jesus that you go to heaven when you die. That's also not the gospel. There's some clarity that we need to find around what the gospel truly is. So if those things aren't the gospel, what is it? Simply stated, the gospel is good news. I love that we asked that question yesterday in our partnership class and someone was like, it's good news. And then the challenge came. Well, what is the good news? And that person answered greatly, perfectly. It was beautiful. I loved it. Not all of us could do that. If we were asked if we could articulate the good news, what would we say? But before we get to that, and before we get to some understandings of the gospel, this idea of good news has its roots, deep roots in history. Deep roots in history on the battlefield. So this idea of good news, it came uh, really throughout history that there would be a kingdom that would go off to war and the king would go off to war and they would go and fight their battle and the people within that city or in that kingdom, they would kind of be waiting with bated breath, what is the news from the battlefield? What is it out there uh, that is happening? We don't know, there's no like drone footage to see what's going on, there's nothing happening and so they waited with bated breath and what would happen is they would send a messenger. The battle would be completed, and whoever was in charge would send a messenger back to the city. And if it was good news, the messenger was sprinting, ready to come and give good news. But if it was bad news, they would maybe not so much be in a hurry to go tell of the failure that just happened out on the battlefield. And the watchmen would be on the gates of the city, and they would be looking out for the messenger, the marathon runner, the sprinter, who is coming back to bear either good news or bad news. And the watchmen would look and see their stride. They were trained to understand if they were running fast, it was good news. If they were kind of jogging it in, or maybe just, you know, I don't know how I'm going to say this yet. Let me just practice a little bit on the way a little bit. They knew that was bad news, and they would turn around and tell the city either good news or bad news. And so when we think about the gospel, it's this message coming back from battle. And it's the messenger and, and the watchman on the gates of the city looking at all of us and saying, good news, the battle has been won. We need to hear that today. There's a lot of bad news floating around today. We prayed for some of it at the top of the hour. Like El Paso, what is that about? Dayton, Ohio, what is that about? What, and, and there's the next one, there's one more. There's gonna be another one. More than just injustices, racial injustices, and mass shootings, and, 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 and the people taking advantage of children and women. I mean, all of that can overwhelm you if you drown yourself in the news systems, or on Facebook, or on Instagram, or Twitter, or whatever it is, however it is you get your news, it will drown out your joy if that's all you hear because it's constantly bad news. Some of it, fake news. That was my best Trump impression, just so you know. I was looking at y'all, that was my best one. You guys didn't even stare. You, apparently I lost you a long time ago. I don't know what's going on in this section, but I'm now coming over here. We have a lot of bad news, and, it, and it's laced with deceit and editorial comment. We don't know what's fact or fiction 
anymore. And yet the gospel rings true to say not only is it news, it's not boring news, it's not bad news, it's good news of victory, of freedom, of the right person's defeat and the right person's triumph over evil. We need to hear that. The world around us needs to hear good news. If we could understand what good news was, I would imagine our lives would change dramatically. I think oftentimes we think of good news as um, Galveston. Um, so like if you grew up, who, who grew up in Houston? Native Houstonians, come on, holler back at me. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, all right. So us native Houstonians, we hear of Galveston, Galveston and we're like, cool. <laughs> That's fun, seaweed. The stench of death. It's fantastic. Can't wait to go to Galveston. Oftentimes, we treat the gospel like Galveston. We think, we grew up next to it. This must be what everybody has. It's just kind of bleh. Until you meet someone from Kansas or Nebraska. And they will come down to Galveston, journey to Galveston, because it's the nearest beach that they can get to, and it's still a day's journey. And they will rearrange their life to come to Galveston, the one that we think is stinky and dirty. They're like, oh, it's the beach! Right? So you remember that? You remember the first time you, you swam in the waters of the gospel? You're like, oh man, this is beautiful. And over the years, it's just been like, this is good news. Woo. Might help you. I don't know. Maybe not. We treat it like Galveston oftentimes. Can we articulate the gospel? We know where Galveston is. Can we know how to get there? Do we know how to describe it to our friends? We treat it like that. Do we know how to articulate the gospel? If someone asked you if you could explain the gospel, what would you say? You'd probably say by now, oh, that's good news. But what is the good news consist of? Several of the definitions that we use at the Grove when we're training leaders consist of this. One of them by Jonathan Dotson and Brad Watson says this, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has defeated death and evil through his own death, I've misquoted this for years, through his own death and resurrection and is now making all things new, even us. If you wanted Josue to preach today on the gospel, he would have said that. So there you go. But then Tim Keller also says this about the gospel. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. I love what one of our leaders said, that the gospel is God sa saving sinners. What, what a great, beautiful, simple little statement. If you can't articulate the gospel, you can articulate that. God saving sinners or maybe we just trust the words of Scripture to articulate the gospel for us. 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is writing about this thing that is of most, of most importance, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And then in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's certainly part of the gospel. But if you notice something right there, Paul is drawing us back into some greater story. When Christie read about uh, Jesus' proclamation of the gospel, it was in connection with a broader story with John the Baptist, 
What was he doing? He was this forerunner to come. He was a prophet that was told about long ago. There was this bigger story that was being, that we're being called into, not just part of it. And so there's four parts to this gospel story that's been really unraveled for us all throughout time. It's creation, fall, redemption, renewal. All of history unfolds the gospel story. If we only think about what Jesus did when he was here in accordance with the scriptures, we forget that all of history has been pointing to Jesus to come. That they were in a desert land for thousands of years. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it is living water to the soul. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal, Creation is Genesis 1 and 2, right? That he created all things and it was good. But not long after that was the fall. In Genesis 3, like real early in the story, does everything go awry? Death, decay, corruption, sin, rebellion. And from Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi, God's people They heard this promise in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sinned against their creator, they heard this promise from God when God promised there would be a redeemer over sin. And for thousands of years, God's people, what did they do? They looked and they longed and they wondered, who would be this redeemer? Would it be Noah? No, he got drunk. Would it be Abraham? No, he came up with this grand scheme to have children, but it wasn't the way that God wanted. Would it be Noah? Would it be Abraham? Would it be maybe Joshua? Or would it be Moses? How about Moses? Nah, he was a murderer. Yes, I named my son after a murderer. So did everybody else that named their son David. He was not the redeemer. He also was a murderer and an adulterer. How about his son Solomon? Oh man, he intermarried with hundreds of women, saw his heart go after other gods. Surely there's a redeemer that's coming, but God's people looked again and they put their hope in humanity again and again and again and again. And what happened to God's people's heart? They became impatient. They became even more rebellious, were so rebellious to a point that God issued his people a decree of divorce and sent them out into the desert. Sent them out into exile underneath the Babylonian rule, this tyrannical, terrible rule of the Babylonians for 70 years, for almost three, four generations. And it was dark and it was depressing and they wondered when the corruption would end until this voice calls out, In Isaiah 52, verse seven, could you just put yourself there? Thousands upon thousands of years of looking for a redeemer and a Messiah to come and every one of your best people failed to the point now where you've just given up all hope. And God has said, you've given up on me. Babylonians are here. You imagine yourself in that position? That all of a sudden these words start to just burst forth from the prophet of God in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful, 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Look, who brings the gospel. That's the good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. And who says to God's people, your God reigns. That's good news. Over every tragedy, over every injustice, and over all the beautiful things that we can see God making new in this world, our God reigns. He is not sleeping. He is not too busy. And he's not disoriented by our rebellion. Our God reigns. That's good news. You see, this connects into Mark 1.15 when Jesus came and what did he do? This part of redemption, this part of the gospel story of not just creation, fall, redemption, which is usually what we think about with the gospel, but then renewal, that he's making all things new in Revelation. He comes in the center of all that. And what is Jesus up to? He comes proclaiming with his mouth the gospel of God, the good news which belongs and is authored by God. And then in 15, he says, the time is fulfilled. What time? All of time has led up to Jesus coming. Give his life for sinners. To love us while we were running away. The time is fulfilled that the kingdom, the reign of God is at hand. It's here. No longer do we need to wait this good news is more than a golden ticket to heaven. It's more than fire insurance. It's more than all that we have made it out to be. We see the real, reality is this. This new ruler has come, right? And he's, there's this, been this proclamation of God's victory over sin and death and his reign over every nook and cranny of our lives and our loves. You and I were once under the tyrannical rule of sin, just like Israel was under the tyrannical rule of Babylon. We made our home there. And sin and death and Satan, but behold, good news, a new ruler has come to reign and he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And though you have gotten used to death, Though you've gotten used and gotten like used to being disoriented and disappointment and disaster and disease and spiritual drought, good news, gospel. A new king has come. He's defeated your old master and tr who treated you as a slave. This new king, he promises to treat you as daughters and sons. Your old master, he, he led you to death. He said it was life, but it really was death. New king, he came. He came to bring you life. The old ruler brought a life of condemnation and guilt, and this new ruler has come and said, good news, there's freedom. There's forgiveness. Good news abounds throughout this book. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal, but gospel centrality is more than just understanding the gospel clearly, that God is saving sinners. It's about our response to that good news. So if you want to be a gospel-centered person, there's a proper response in all of that. And Jesus would say, it's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. See, all of us, is easy to rejoice in the victory of God as our Savior, but it is all the more difficult to rejoice in God as King and as Lord. So that means he wants control of things that we don't want to give him control of. 
That means he's going to invade some spaces that we've barricaded against our good king and said, no, this one's mine. See the, 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 the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. No, no, this one's mine. No, no, I'm all in. I'm all in on you, Jesus. I'm all in. And then you see the result of that. It leads literally to death. So God wants to reign and rule and he will invade every nook and cranny of our hearts that we've sealed off to him. Every part of our hearts, every room that we've sealed off, he's come in, he's kicking it down and he's saying, this one's mine too. Now come on, this leads to life. See, that's good news, isn't it still? Some of us, Carol says yes, everyone else is like, nope, still bad news. And so Jesus says to us, repent. Repent. That word repent literally means just to change your mind. And so repent is one half of the equation. And then there's this other half of faith, trust. Trust in someone else's goodness. Trust in something else other than yourself. And so repentance and faith is really just change and trust. Change our minds about who God is and what we think he came to do and trust him for who he truly is and what he's revealed about himself. Change and trust. That is a gospel-centered life again and again and again and again. So when the news goes out about Galveston this week, do you hear that news? Three of us have said yes. This is, you can just find a nod or interact if you like. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you. So like it, when the news of, of Galveston goes out and it says, it's clear. The water is clear. What do you do? Go. You go. You go and you go, oh my. And like if, you, if, if you're, anyways, like my wife came back yesterday. She went, I had to do some things here, but she went with the kids and she showed me her videos and she's doing this in the water. Like, is it really clear? Can it really be this way? I've never seen this before. See, understanding the gospel is one thing. You know there's a beach right there, but gospel centrality is changing your mind about the seaweed and the stench of death that you think is down there and trusting the news that there's something better to be had if I would just go and see it and swim in it. It's a great picture for us. The, Gal the Galveston's the gospel? Yep. We'll never see that city the same, I hope. Will we rearrange that, our lives around that kind of news? We native Houstonians, we take it for granted, but there is something better. We Christians that have been in the church for a long time take the good news for granted, but there's something better if we would just change our mind about really what it is and trust God for what it truly is, what he's truly come to do. It's not just about affirming the good news, it's about swimming in the good news. So if we picked up on our metaphor, metaphor? <laughs> well, all right, looks like we're done here. Josue, tag team. <laughs> metaphor, if we picked up on the metaphor of a messenger declaring good news from the field of battle and coming back to the kingdom, most of us, I'm gonna just go out on a limb here, most of us think that we're in the good kingdom. If there's two kingdoms, one is good and one is evil, one is of light and one is darkness, most of us think that we're in the good kingdom, the, the kingdom of light. But the Bible says the opposite. We actually hunker down in the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of darkness. 
And so when messenger after messenger named Jeremiah, named Ezekiel, named Isaiah, messenger after messenger came into that kingdom and they proclaimed good news. Messiah is coming. What did we do in our kingdom of darkness? We killed those guys. We said we want none of it. We like our master of Satan and sin and death. See, that's the gospel message. And so all of a sudden, the, the, the true Messiah comes to our kingdom and he says, no, no, for real good news, I've defeated your master. We actually also killed him. But over time, the gospel message has taken root in this new kingdom and we've been drawn out of the darkness. Colossians 1 would say that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his wonderful, marvelous son. See, that's what happened with the gospel. We weren't in a good kingdom and God came to go make us better. We were in an evil kingdom and we liked it there. And God came and brought us up out of there and brought us into his kingdom of life and truth. There's so much beauty in this story. See, we once hid in the dark, we betrayed and condemned by the way that we always heard about this new king would come and he would tell us that there was these rules. Too many rules. See, our old master said, there's too many rules with that guy, Jesus. Too many rules with him, too many restrictions. All he wants to do is bind us. All he wants to do is take away the things that, are, that we want and our desires. We were in a told that true freedom was found only in creating our own way and taking that which is pleasing and making a name for ourselves, just like Adam and Eve. Taking that which is pleasing to the eye as our mother Eve and making a name for ourselves, just like our old dad, Adam. But that's what the scriptures say. We were once that way. In Ephesians 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses, following Satan, disobedient, carrying out the desires of our body. We carried out the desires of our body. Therefore, that was the way that we expressed our disobedience to God. Friends, just because you have a desire does not mean that it is godly or that you should pursue it. Let's take captive those desires unto Christ. For he's king. Your God reigns. This is what the Bible continues to say, that in Colossians 1, we were hostile in our minds. If it wasn't enough in our bodies and in our hearts, there was hostility in our minds. We were enemies of his. We constantly did evil deeds. Or perhaps more simply in Romans 5, that we, when Christ died for us, we were sinning. We were sinners against him. Right? But God who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ when we were sinners. We were purchased by the death of Jesus and though we were running in the opposite direction, Jesus reconciled us to his Father, presenting us now blameless, presenting us now holy, not demanding that we pay our own way into this kingdom, but instead saying, it has been paid for you. Come, enjoy, be free. The centrality of the gospel in our hearts means to obey again and again Jesus' first two commandments of repent and believe in the gospel. That there is victory and the king reigns. I wish it was that simple for us though. I wish it was that simple to just continue to believe 
that Jesus is king and that he's good and that he truly is the God who came to save sinners. But there are two thieves that want to steal this truth from us and want to steal this joy from us. Tertullian was an early church father and he said this about Jesus. He said, um, ultimately this, he said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification, of God making sinners right with him, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Jesus in the middle, thief here, thief here. The gospel truth in the middle, there's a thief over here, and there's a thief over here. And on the one hand, we have the thief of performance, of legalism, of religion, of morality. And on the other side of Jesus, or the other side of us as we pursue Jesus, is this other liar, right, of irreligion, of, of not legalism, but licentiousness. And not morality, but amorality, of irreligion. See, on this side, we've got those that think they're good enough God owes them something if they would just behave and obey him. You ever notice that those who struggle with legalism, which I'm gonna go, I'm gonna put my name in that hat, struggle with legalism, they usually say, well, I'm not as bad as blank. And usually whatever fills in the blank is like someone who belongs in prison. <laughs> well, I've never murdered anybody. Congratulations, man. Well, I've never, I've never you know, done this. That's great. But oftentimes, what we've got to realize for the religious people in our hearts is that we're not being compared to people that belong in prison. We need to compare ourselves to Jesus. He's the standard. He's the one that came to fulfill the law. See, it's this system of paying for our own sins is the thing that Jesus came to free us from, of self-atoning strategies, of coming to church, of giving a tithe, I'll even be on the road crew, Jesus. If you would just do X, Y, and Z, oh God, free us from such slavery. And then on the other side is licentiousness that we don't even care about good and bad. That everything is in a shade of gray. That we just kind of create our own system of goodness and badness, of good and evil. And we determine right and wrong for ourselves. And so these pretenders, these licentious, are robbed of the joy of the gospel because they fall into the trap of believing that happiness is found from running from standards of holiness and accountability. You and I have friends like this. They shirk off responsibility for pleasure, for recreation, for the pursuit of a really good thing. But it's become a God thing. How do you know it's become a God thing? Because their affections have been stirred towards something other than Jesus. That's how we know it becomes a God thing. And usually that ends up being a life of disappointment because often, more often than not, freedom isn't found in pretending and licentiousness and being unshackled from standards. On the one side, the thief of performance. On the other side, the thief of of pretending. Things aren't that bad. It's all good. 
Both of these thieves are two evils that keep us from the good news that Jesus came to give us victory over sin and reign over our lives. And so I plead with you as Jesus pled with us, repent, change, and believe, trust in the good news, the gospel, that God's victory and reign are to be trusted, pursued, and lead to life. Jesus is the author of life. He knows the way. So how do we whittle this down into some things that we can take away from here. We can affirm these things. We go, okay, I understand the gospel now. We can affirm uh, the gospel centrality part of this that's really just our response and repentance and faith again and again and again. What are some of the things as a church that we can do? Three things. First, individually, would you remember the good news? That's what these tables are for. When, when, when Jesus ordained that we would do communion together, it was to remember the gospel again and again and again and again, week in and week out, and there's this common need, right? But individually, friends, you are forgiven. Your identity is a blood-bought son and daughter or daughter of God, that he has sealed you until the day of redemption, that you have been purchased by the perfect blood of the lamb, not because you deserved it, no, but because God wanted to give it to you. You know that Chick-fil-A is a Christian company, right? I think they got the it's my pleasure thing from the Bible. I can't prove this because I don't have their documents. But there's a passage in the scriptures where Jesus says to his people, he says, fear not little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And in the kingdom of Chick-fil-A, they give you chicken and, and nuggets and and. And, and, and fries, those waffle fries, y'all. And then when you, you take it and you receive it, what do they say? It's my pleasure to give you the kingdom. <laughs> it is the good pleasure of our father, little flock, that we may not be afraid that he would give us the kingdom. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We don't have to stay here but in our, based on our good behavior. He's not looking out for us and going, I saw what you did there. Man, one more of those and you're gonna be out of the kingdom, outside of the camp. That's not the kingdom. That's not the good news. Individually, we are forgiven. Communally, as a community, as a family, because of our forgiveness and acceptance by God as God's kids, we are free from the tyranny that comes from the fear of man, from the fear of one another. We don't have to be afraid of one another anymore. What does that look like? Well, we're afraid of, your, of my rejection. I'm afraid of your rejection. I'm afraid that you won't approve of me. I'm afraid that I can't do enough for X, Y, or Z. That's all rooted in fear of one another. And, but if we would truly believe in the gospel that we are accepted not by our own behavior, but instead on the behavior of Jesus, that we are accepted not on our own performance or our own good attitude or our own morality, but instead on all that based on Jesus, then communally we can relate with one another without fear. Because it doesn't matter all that much. What matters is the acceptance that we have with Jesus and through Jesus with the Father. See, that's a, that's a tyrannical reign, this fear of man. We don't have to be held hostage by others' opinions of us or the desire to be accepted by others. Instead, we live in a playing field that is leveled by repentance and faith. And that produces enough if we would just practice repentance and faith, humility and gratitude. We would no longer stand on some good Standing of, I am on the road crew and I serve every, every week. Or I do the nursery and I serve three times a month. 
Uh, instead, it's just leveled out. My satisfaction or Jesus' satisfaction is made complete in him, not in us. Individually, communally, and then organizationally. Last summer, we went away as the elders of our church. This summer, we did the same thing. We didn't come up with anything new this year. Just the reiteration of the same of what came up, we came up with last year. And it was basically two things. Really just one thing, if you really want to boil it down. That we would be a people that have this message of good news so flowing through our veins that repentance and faith would just come out of us. We want you to know how to read the Bible. We've put systems and places in place for everyone to be able to know how to read the Bible. We've encouraged many of you to download the Read Scripture app so you can just click off reading the Bible every day. It would be a great understanding, a great tool for your understanding. But if that understanding and knowledge leads not to faith and repentance, it's pointless. And so how do we pursue a knowledge that leads to faith and repentance? Well, programmatically, we say, man, you need to get into a growth group of either men or women of two to four people. Go on your own, read the Bible, ask questions about what the Bible means and what it says. And also, don't forget the most important part. What am I supposed to do as a result of these truths? And then on your own, you go and try and obey Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Obey me? If you love me, you'll obey me. That's what Jesus says. So if we love him, we'll obey him. We don't obey him to get love from him. If we love him, though, we obey him. And see, repentance and faith comes when we try to obey and we're terrible at it. And no longer are we like, yeah, I read Colossians. I got it. I got through Leviticus. Nailed it. Have you tried to obey any of that? Because if we had, we would be repentant. And then we would be reminded of faith in the good news. And if we're really good, or we think we're really good at obedience, then the same thing happens, that we were reminded of the good news, that your acceptance by God also isn't by your obedience. Just like the one who couldn't obey, their acceptance by God isn't based on their disobedience. Instead, your acceptance by God is through faith and repentance, and because God saves sinners. So truly, I say to you, would you take advantage of these systems of care that this church has in place? Would you, would you and I submit to that process and not just make up our own thing? Well, I know they want us to do that, but I really like Beth Moore or Matt Chandler. Well, I know they want to do that, but I'm gonna, I really like this podcast. Have you heard this podcast or this little book by Rosaria Butterfield, which is really good? Or Jen Wilkin, which the women just all got done doing. Well, would we submit ourselves to this process of repentance and faith? See, that's the goal, repentance and faith, because we want to be a people of humility and of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. So I end with these questions. Will we be a people of legalism? Come here or go everywhere, whomever. Maybe you're really missional and that's your, your point of righteousness, performance, Will we be a people of licentiousness that kind of shirk off standards and we just kind of pretend we're not really that bad? Or will we be a people that center ourselves around the gospel so that we might repent and believe in the good news that God has come for us?
brought us out of that old kingdom, transferred us into the kingdom of his wonderful son so that we may live free, that the water is clear, no longer the stench of death. May we swim in that. Let's pray together. Father, we want to honor you through our response. I pray that these words have been honoring to you and that as we sing the next part of our gathering, I pray that would be honoring. I pray that we would remember who we are in your son Jesus. We can live a life that is captivated by the world, a live a life that is known for our own name or for the name of our old master Adam, or we can live a life that is found clothed in Christ, the, the greater Adam that was to come, who has come to redeem us through perfect obedience. I pray, Lord, that we would see these two truths before us, that you'd give us the ability and the sensitivity to respond to your name and to your call to live out of this God-given identity of sons and daughters of God. May we be a people that take these things seriously and yet at the same time abound in gratitude and enjoy because we don't deserve any of it. So we love you, Father. We love you for sending your son, for sending your only son. I would never do that with my Moses. I would never give up my son for my worst enemy. And yet that's what you did for me. And that's what you did for all of us. You gave up your, the best for the worst. Thank you, Lord. May we be clothed in humility. May we be reminded of our identity in you. May we be a people that are wholly dependent upon this good news. Good news. God is saving sinners in Christ's name. Amen.